0: All right, we're continuing the Sermon on the Mount. We're just going to jump right in. And um, we're still in Matthew 5. And there were notes in the back, but there aren't any more. So look over somebody's shoulder. Or you can go to our website, and the notes are on the website if you need them. Um, So. We talked about the Beatitudes. We talked about being salt and light. Um, Last week, we talked about hatred and forgiveness and the spirit of murder um, that Jesus talked about. And and I think as we look at what Jesus is speaking about in the Sermon on the Mount, um, I believe there's a priority in the process that he goes through. Those things that he knows are going to have the greatest effect upon, he's speaking to Israel at the time, but upon you and I as well. And I would say there's probably been nothing more destructive in my generation and this generation than follows in the spirit of immorality. Um, if, if we were to dissect it down to its, to its most base understanding, um, Roe versus Wade was really an approval of sexual immorality. Um, and we have become a nation and become a world now, to where most political decisions, most arguments, most people who are being censored or whatever is going on, it has to do with the area of sexual morality. Um, and part of the problem is this: we have we have to be honest with ourselves. Part of the problem has been the silence of the church. We are afraid to speak truth because of the ramifications in this day and this hour to speak truth and to say what the Word of God says. Um, most, if not all of you, would know who Martina Navitrilova is. You know, probably one of the greatest women tennis players of all time. And she spoke out a couple of weeks ago about the unfairness of allowing transgender men to compete against women in sporting events. And she says, there's just no way. It's, the, it's not equal. And the entire, she is, she is lesbian. The entire LGBTQ community came down on her, and she stood her ground. But then all of a sudden, two days ago, she issues an apology. That shows you the power of the pressure um, of of, of what is going on in our culture. And so, as we look at the spirit of immorality, I think the church has to wake up. Um, It's interesting how um, most of the discussion uh, about sexual immorality nowadays has to do with uh, LGBTQ communities. And um, the church kind of ignores adultery, kind of ignores fornication. And I think one of the reasons is the church is so silent on these is because they live, are alive and well within the church. Adultery and immorality. And so we're just going to walk through and see what Jesus says and see how it applies to our life in this day and this hour. And I would say if... I would tell you the conclusion before I tell you the beginning. Um, We can't be quiet. We can't be silent. We have to, I mean, yes, we will speak in love, but just understand, we live in a culture now that has redefined love. Love is defined now as acceptance, and that is not love. Love is not accepting sin. Love is not accepting um, immorality. That is not love. Acceptance is not the definition of love. And um, so let's just jump in. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said of those of old, to those of old, excuse me, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than your whole body be cast into hell. So we need to understand, first of all, that Jesus wasn't taking the seventh commandment and changing it all of a sudden making the emphasis different. Um, He wasn't raising the standard of the Old Testament law. He was, in fact, explaining it. He was saying when when God gave these 10 commandments to Moses up on Mount Sinai and he came down and gave them to the children of Israel, there was a greater intention behind the heart of God than just physical actions. It was about the spirituality of humankind, particularly from the physical act. I'm, I'm going to change the standard. I'm going to raise the standard now. And we're going to talk about the position of the heart. What he was saying was God's intention always was about where is your heart? What is the intention of your heart? Because our relationship with God is not based upon our physical life, it's based upon our spiritual life. Our relationship with God is based upon our heart touching his heart and vice versa. The Pharisees had taught that committing adultery only involved the physical act of of sex, whether it was the act of adultery, whether it was the act of fornication, or whether it was the act of homosexuality that that was the only sin. It was the phys- physical act. It had nothing to do with the mind and the heart and the intentions. But Jesus says that, that, that we, there are two very important principles that have to do with sexual immorality. The first one is our eyes move our heart into a spirit of immorality. In other words, the eye gate is the entrance into the mind which then works its way down to our heart. Jesus understood that. So he's saying we have to deal with this on its most basic level. The second thing is that we have to do radical, costly, painful decisions to remove whatever stirs up lust. I mean, he goes pretty pretty extreme. He says, if, if you're going to look at something that's going to cause you to lust and sin, gouge your eyes out. You know, if you're going to use your hands to do something that's going to cause you to lust or sin, cut your hands off. And he's pretty specific. He says, look, because it, it's better for you to be handless and blind than it is to continue in your sin and spend eternity in hell. So he wasn't pulling any punches here. He was being very clear, very specific about the sin of sexual immorality. And Jesus wasn't railing against the sin. He was instead giving insight into the people. Remember, there's thousands of people listening to him right now. He started just to teach his disciples, but the crowd showed up. And so he's given insight to help them detect the source of immorality in their lives so they can deal with the thing that causes immorality as opposed to the physical act itself. So his whole premise is, let's take care of it before it gets over here. Let, let's go back and let's deal with it before we act upon it. And so he, he wants to understand the, the destructive nature of the spirit of immorality. The greatest heartbreak I've dealt with in pastoring is the sin of immorality. I've, I've, had, to, I've had to deal with divorces. I've had to deal with children who walk away from the Lord because... and, and It's not just men. I've I've, the the first time I had just been senior pastor for two weeks. I was in my office. A guy walks into my office with a gun. Part of our congregation, and uh, says, "I want to kill myself," and I am freaking out. Because I don't know if he wants to kill me and then kill himself. I don't know what he wants to do. And so I'm trying to talk him down to give me the gun. Praying like I never prayed before. um, But as it turned out, his wife had just left him for another woman. And they were in leadership in our church. She was active in our children's ministry. Um, And... uh, I, I talked the gun away from him, called the police, gave them the gun, and then dealt. And I said, well, let me talk to her. It can't be as bad as you as you say. And, and this is a woman who would come to church every week in a dress and makeup and, and all this. And she walks in to my office. She's cut her hair to guy's length. And she is wearing a biker outfit, leather jacket, chains. She has. Kikis all over her necks, and she just starts speaking the most vile words and sexual things that I have ever heard. And I'm going, how in the world did this happen? How did Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm become this, with nobody knowing? It was Jezebel, but I—the heartbreak of that, the destruction—watching her life fall apart, watching their kids' lives fall apart, watching everything that happened because of sexual morality. And I tell you that story just so you know, because generally in our culture, when we think of sexual morality, we think it's a guy's sin. It is a girl sin. Statistics show us now that it is almost even the percentage of women addicted to pornography compared to the percentage of men. It's not a man's deal anymore, it's not a man's sin anymore. It is a humanity sin. It is the greatest, and listen closely, it is the greatest weapon the enemy has kept in his back pocket until this day and this hour. Do you know then in the book of Daniel when it talks about the abomination of desolation and it talks about the Antichrist, do you know what Daniel says about the Antichrist? He will have no desire for women. Now, there's a lot of theologians that discuss what does that mean? Does it mean this? Does it mean that? It could just mean he's celibate or it could mean he's gay. We don't know. But sexuality is a part of the nature or lack of sexuality is part of the nature of the Antichrist. It is a spirit that is prevalent today. It's going to get worse and worse and worse. And the way it's going to get worse and worse and worse is that we live in a culture now that has lost its moral compass there is nothing considered immoral anymore we know the debate now it's not considered immoral to kill a baby after it's born that's that's not illegal now our us congress has actually taken a vote on the Cong- on, on the floor of congress on whether or not they want to make this law or not so and and It's all come out of a spirit of immorality. And so the Lord set all sexual expression to be within the covenant of marriage. God created sex. The devil didn't create it. The devil has just mutated it and used it as a weapon because of the depravity of man's heart, knowing that if man... Will not listen to his heart, it is very easy to get him to listen to his flesh. So, if he can entice the flesh and have him ignore the heart, humanity will dive in with both feet into this sin of sexual morality. So, there is only one place where sexual activity enriches the life of a person. And that's in the context of marriage, a covenant between one man and one woman. We need to be loud and clear about that. We need to not shrink back because we're afraid we're going to hurt somebody's feelings or we're going to offend somebody or we're going to cause an argument. Now, we need to be wise about it. Don't go on Facebook tomorrow and, and, and put my sermon notes because, you know, it's, it, it's kind of like. You know, our, my, my friends from Australia, Kate and Ruben. Kate was in Kansas City for a couple weeks. And she flew home uh, last weekend. And I met her at LA. Janet and I met her at LAX and had dinner with her. And she brought me a birthday present. And um, it was a hat that says, Trump 2020, keep America great. to <laughs> wear that? Yeah. And she wanted to know why I wouldn't put it on. We're sitting at LA. I wanted to make it home. You wanted to get out? Yes. I wanted to make it home. But that's the culture we live in. Do you recognize that that hat, even though it's, I mean, Donald Trump, I'm not saying he's he's the best guy, but basically what that hat stands for is morality. That hat stands for marriage between a man and a woman. That hat stands for the ending of abortion. That hat stands for embracing Israel and embracing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. That hat stands for everything moral. And if I'm going to put that hat on, I'm going to... What's that? Accept the Donald. Except the Donald, correct. It's a rod. It's, it is a lightning rod but we're supposed to be a lightning rod. Okay, but we have to be wise about it. I'm not going to wear that hat in public. I'm sorry. I'm just not I am not going to do it. In just in your house. Just in my I actually bought I bought Reuben cuz he loves Donald Trump. So when just after Trump got elected, I bought Reuben a Make America Great Again hat for his birthday. He wore it to the airport in Sydney, and a woman came up and attacked him. Not physically, but verbally, and used every vial. He says he thought the only words she knew started with F, and it, it, she just railed on him. An Australian, in Australia. in Australia, in Sydney, in the airport, railed on him for wearing a Make America Great Again hat. So it is. It is a worldwide culture. So we have to be wise, you know. In fact, the Bible talks about it. You know, be wise as serpents, gentle as a, we, we need to be wise about what we do, but we still need to be a voice of righteousness. So Jesus says there's two principles that he emphasized here. In in fact, sexual sin, I just want to, I got a little ahead of myself. Um, To engage in sexuality without this lifelong covenant, this lifelong commitment, um, defiles our spirit, because sexual relationship is to be motivated by a love covenant between a man and a woman in the presence of God. And you understand the love covenant is just not a man and a woman pledging themselves to each other. It's a man and a woman pledging themselves to God to follow what his word says as they love one another in that relationship. Um, David is the classic example of what happens when you allow your eyes to control your body as opposed to your heart. But that Um, first of all, when you read the story of David and Bathsheba, that passage of scripture starts this way. It was the time of year when kings go to war and David stayed home. So David's first problem was he was supposed to be in battle. He decided to stay home. He's on his balcony. He sees Bathsheba bathing, which means she's naked on the balcony. He allowed his eye gate to affect his heart gate, which then affected his flesh gate. And he went and he committed adultery. She gets pregnant. Now, there are those who have a great debate. Because he's the king, there are many who say that that wasn't adultery, it was rape, because you cannot refuse the king. And we don't know how that relationship was. We don't know if she was as seduced to him or if she gave in because he was king. But we do know this, that he has a problem now. She's pregnant, so he's got to get the husband home really quick, get him into bed with his wife so that when she has a baby, he thinks it's his and not David's. But Uriah the Hittite is so faithful to God and so faithful to his king that he refuses to have sexual relationship with his wife. He sleeps outside the house, outside the door, just so he won't be tempted. He says, I'm not going to sleep in the same bed with her because I know where that's going. So I'm going to sleep outside, not even get near to her because I'm so committed to my king, so committed to my God. So what's David's option? Kill him. Kill him. So David commits murder. And this is what it says in, in, in 2 Samuel 12, 10, It says, now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah Hittite to be your wife. So David's sin put the sword in his hand for the rest of his life. Now his son Solomon had the blessing of never having to fight a war. But David had a sword in his hand even against his own son Absalom for the rest of his life because of his sexual sin which led to murder. So there's two principles that Jesus emphasizes in this passage. Number one, whoever looks at another per- to another person to lust has already committed adultery in their heart. I'll tell you an, uh, another interesting story. Um, I have only voted not Republican once. And that was when Jimmy Carter ran for president and I voted for him for one reason. I mean, I was young. And he said, in an interview, he said, I have committed adultery because I have looked at other women and lusted in my heart, but God has forgiven me. And I thought, this is a righteous man. He confesses this before the world. That's a man I want to be my president. Boy, do not ever vote for somebody because they quote a verse. (laughs) But Jesus is pretty clear here. The spirit of immorality operates, as rooted in looking with lust at a person directly or through, nowadays, internet media. So it fuels the heart with sexual fantasies. Adultery progresses from eye adultery to heart adultery to flesh adultery. There has to be a process. You do not get to flesh adultery without it entering through the eye gate. And Jesus says, as it enters through the eye gate, it goes to your heart. And he says, if you look at a woman or a man with lust, you have already committed adultery in your heart. So eyes lead to heart. Once you give in to the lust in your heart and entertain that thought, it eventually will move to physical adultery. And I have... I have Dealt with it over and over again with people that some would deem to be so righteous, continually so godly. And yet because of their weakness, continually entering into sexual sin. And it's heartbreak. And it is my greatest point of anger. You know, I have to go back to last week's message about forgiveness and murder in your heart because I have a real hard time with adulterers. I have a real hard time forgiving because of all the destruction it does. Um, and that's just being honest there. So Jesus emphasizes the, the role of the eye. He's, he says, look, at, if it's an eye problem, guys, it's easy. Gouge your eye out. You know, I, I, I could be a little more subtle. Um, you know, if if it's, You know, an eye problem, remove as much as you can from your life that is going to cause your eyes to wonder. Get rid of your phone, your computer, your iPad. Don't be tempted to go to anything. And I'm not talking about pornography, because you don't have to go to pornography. There are so many things out there, so many stories. I mean, you know, the Sports Illustrated swimsuit model you know, my uh, there are certain, you know, I told my wife, don't ever shop at Victoria's Secret because their stuff is getting mailed to our house. I don't have to look at that stuff when I go through the mail because that stuff is not, I, I mean, think about it. Victoria's Victoria Secret catalog is not for women. <laughs> no, Victoria has no more secrets, you're right. She's uncovered them all. That catalog is to entice men to buy that stuff to try and create this fantasy they see on the page with the woman of their life. So Jesus said, get rid of the stuff in front of your eye, and if you have to, cut your eye out. You know, I love that verse in Job where Job says, Job 31.1, he says, I have made a covenant with my eyes that why should I look upon a young woman? I mean, Job got it. The righteous man, the guy God's bragging about to Satan. Have you seen my servant Job? Part of Job's righteousness when he made a covenant with his eyes. He said, I'm just going to make sure that when that cute little girl walks by, I look the other way. I'm not going to allow my eyes to entertain any type of thought that is going to allow that thought to get to my heart. Because once it gets to my heart, there's only one step after that. So David also affirmed after the fact that the eye gate was the battle front to walk perfectly or mature before God. David says in Psalm 101, verses 2 and 3, I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. Well, he learned this firsthand with Bathsheba. First of all, he was in his house when he looked down and he saw her naked bathing. And so when he says he will set nothing wicked before his eyes, first of all, if he was at war where he should have been, if he had gone out with the other kings to fight battle, he would have never been in that compromising situation. So one sin always leads to another sin. So recognize David's sexual sin actually began with him not fulfilling his kingly role to lead his nation into battle. I mean, that's a profound statement in scripture to say it was the time of the year when kings go to war and David stayed home. I mean, that sums up his his whole demeanor right then. And so the the second thing Jesus emphasized is how important it is to deal with immorality in a radical way. And so um, I'm just going to tell you, sitting down and, and counseling people, there is no casual way to break the spirit of lust. There is no casual way to break a spirit of immorality. You can't just say, fine, I just won't do it. It doesn't happen. It is such a powerful, perverse spirit that entices and draws people in, sucks them in. You just can't say, okay, I'm just, it's no problem. It, it doesn't work that way. So, you know, it, it means that some of what we cherish, people, places, things, need to be removed from our eyes. And, I, and I'm serious. You know, there are some, if, if you know someone who struggles with going to the wrong places on the internet, be a friend of there's a lot of accountability software that two friends can have together. I have a number of men that I'm accountable with that whenever they, wherever they go to on the internet, I get a report every month of every website they've gone to. And, and the websites are rated. You know, and so there's an accountability there. That, that's, you know, your greatest, if you're married, your greatest accountability partner should be your wife. You know, my wife knows every password on my computer. My wife knows she can open my computer and go to any place she wants to go on my computer anytime. I want that kind of accountability. I, you know, because we are all flesh. We are all human. It doesn't matter who you are, how righteous you think you are, how strong you think you are. It takes... One day decide you're not going to go to war, and the rest is history. So many in the church have a real low view of eternal punishment, because I think if they fully recognize what Jesus said about the consequence of someone who embraces immorality, the consequence is it sucks you in deeper and deeper and deeper. And, and I have sat with godly men. I mean, men who spoke into my life, you know, who after they have fallen in, in immorality and, and, and walk them through it and they fall again and I walk them through it and they fall again, I've had them say, well, look at Abraham can have more than one wife. People in the New Testament have more. Why can't I? First of all, dude, it's hard enough to be married to one woman. <laughs> you know, I don't know how a guy can, you know, have three or four or however many wives. You know, it's hard enough for her to be married to me. So, but but the church doesn't take seriously. Listen, listen to what the Bible says. First Corinthians six verses nine through ten. Do not be deceived. Do you all know what that means? Don't be fooled. Neither fornicators. Fornication is sex outside between two people who aren't married. Fornication. Nor idolaters. Do you all know what an idolater is? Somebody who worships something other than God. Nor adulterers. So that's two people who are married to other people who are having sex together. Nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, which is a very descriptive word of homosexuality, nor thieves, nor drunkards will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, it's, in the church, we hear the uproar against homosexuality. How much uproar do we hear against drunkards and against thieves? How much uproar do we hear about idolaters? God puts them all in the same category. We seem like, we think like homosexuality is the greatest of all the sins and the others are like down the list. As far as scripture is concerned, they're all equal. Adultery, fornication, homosexuality, sodomy, um, you know, stealing, drinking, or not drinking, getting drunk. Ephesians 5, 5, and 6. This you know, that no fornicator has an inheritance in the kingdom. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes. Revelation 20 of the New Jerusalem, 15. Enter into the New Jerusalem, but outside of the New Jerusalem are the sexually immoral. Grace and mercy... Listen closely. Grace and mercy are always available to a repentant heart. You know, Paul says, Paul got it. He says, why is it the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I do? And I found in, in, in my life, indeed, with people in my own life, everyone has certain weaknesses. Okay, some people may never have a, have a problem with sexual sin. It could never cross their mind. Maybe they're gluttons, maybe they're drunks, maybe they're chronic spenders, maybe they're liars. You know, that there's always something that that people seem to go back to in this cyclic thing. But Jesus says, well, actually, John says, 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So that means the confession of sin, and, and understand the heart is a confession of sin that comes from repentance it and to repent means to change direction to turn around so for someone who wants to stop wants to turn around wants to stop sinning there's grace and mercy and listen god knows that we are flesh and that we are weak and that we may commit the same sin again but it's about where is our heart Where's the repentant heart? So when it talks about idolaters and fornicators and, and it talks about the immoral not having a place to kingdom and gone, it's talking about people who may have been believers, who have embraced this life to say, what's the use? I can't, I can't stop it. I'm just going to give in to it. And, and the Bible talks about that as well. Because here's what happened. Lust grows. A spirit of immorality is unbiased and it operates to the degree that anyone opens the door to it. So lust doesn't care who you are, doesn't care how old you are. And we live in a culture where they believe probably, and this is a a safe estimation, of children under 12 whose parents have given them smartphones, they estimate 50 to 60% of children under 12 had looked at pornography on their phones. So it is a deceptive. The enemy wants to get them young. If he can get them sucked in young, he figures he has them the rest of their life. He wants to, Satan wants our weakness to escalate to wickedness. Um, But in order for that to happen, in order for your weakness or my weakness to escalate to wickedness, we have to cooperate with what the enemy's doing. He, He can't make us do anything we don't want to do. So when we enter into sexual sin, we are moving into an agreement of cooperating with the enemy's schemes. And, and I mean, we could t- say about anything. If, if you're a chronic liar, if you're a glutton, if you're a drunkard, you know, what, whatever your weakness is, when you give into it, you're moving into agreement with what the enemy is trying to accomplish in your life. And so, and, and Paul, when he writes to the church of Galatians, he says this, he says, don't be deceived. Now, who's the deceiver? Hello? Satan. Don't be deceived. So he's saying, don't let Satan fool you. God is not mocked. That means what God has said, God means and is true. So don't be fooled. God doesn't lie. Whatever you sow you will reap. Be not deceived, God's not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. So, if you sow immorality into your life, you will reap the fruit of immorality. And scripture talks about what that fruit is. So we need to understand that lust is an, an deception. Lust is a deception. Lust is, and an, you know, I don't want to get Sex is sex. I don't want else to say that. I mean, the results are generally the same. So the enemy deceives us into believing that somehow sex is going to be different in another setting. But God created it to be the same. And so we we need to understand he's a deceiver. Don't be deceived. God's not going to be mocked. What God has said is true. Whatever you sow, whatever seed you plant in your life, whatever you allow to, to be planted in your heart, is going to be the fruit that you're going to reap. And so immorality sins against the body by opening the door for for sexual addiction to be established. Paul says this to the church at Corinth. He says, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does outside the body, every sin man does is outside the body. Okay? So he's just talking about stealing, lying, cheating, all those things outside. But... He who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body because it's a heart issue. Jesus says if you're committing physical immorality, you've already given in to your heart. So immorality defiles the body. It dulls the spirit. It provides Satan legal access to enter the human domain through these open windows for demonic activity. People sin against their own bodies by embracing or participating in sexual sin. Paul writes to the church at Rome, and understand, the Roman Empire was a pretty debased empire. Their their sexual sins were anything you can imagine was going. And so Paul is writing to believers who have grown up in this culture, and I would say that culture of Rome was probably no different than the culture in our nation today or in the world today. And Paul, Paul says... God gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts. So gave them up to uncleanness, to dishonor their bodies among themselves. God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. So he's talking about women going after women sexually. Likewise, the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned to their lust for another men, men who committed what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty, penalty of their error. God gave them over to a debased mind, to those things which are not fitting. So Paul talking about people who started out in godliness, righteousness gave in to certain things. And because they gave in, there's a penalty. God says those who continually walk in these and don't deal with it by confession of sin and seeking to walk in righteousness, says three things happen. Number one, God's going to give you up to your uncleanness because he's already said he did that. Leaving them compelled by the lust to dishonor their bodies, engaging in even more immoral activity. And I don't need to go down the list of immoral activities. Then he says they were given up to vile passions, stronger lust less for new types of sexual experience that go far beyond what people are accustomed to. God just says, if you're going to pursue that, I'm going to give you up to whatever you pursue and go after. And he says, gave them over to a debased mind. All restraints are lifted from the thinking. There is nothing. And and some, some of the laws, I mean, we have a woman running for president for the Democrat Party, who now believes that soliciting sex should be made legal. We should remove any penalty, any crime from prostitution. Now what she, and I don't think she's ignorant. I think she's evil. Most of the prostitution that takes place in any nation is the result of human trafficking. Young girls, young boys who have been kidnapped, who have been trafficked, who have been addicted to drugs, and they pay for the drugs, but they are trafficked. And so what she's saying is, we should devalue human life for these people who are being trafficked, and we should give their pimps a greater realm of influence without any penalty. Now, that's not a hypothetical. That is part of her platform. Kamala Harris. So we are to that place in culture that has become that debased. You can kill babies after they're born. We are going to delegitimize the penalty of prostitution. Go ahead. It's going to be more and more and more. They're talking now about um, removing the penalty of having sex with minors. And if they remove that penalty then that removes the penalty of child pornography. You remove the penalty of child pornography, and when, what does that mean? The child pornographers are free to do, to abuse, to, to kidnap, to do whatever they want to do to children. I'm not, and we're not making this up. This is not hypothetical. This is where we are now. And it all comes out of the spirit of immorality. The spirit of immorality. So someone who's given up to dark desires is no longer repentant, is no longer remorseful because there's no conviction in their heart anymore. They've become debased. They've become amoral. They, um, you know, and and so what happens is God says, if you're going to go down that road to where you're not, I'm just going to go ahead and lift the restraints and you go ahead and be as debased as you want to be. There's a penalty for that. And, and I'll go back to the point that the church has lost the impact of the penalty of eternity. The church doesn't have an eternal mindset. The church is like most people. We live for today. We don't recognize we're eternal beings. And what we're doing right now, this living and breathing right now, is but a miniature blip, if it's even a blip, on the line of eternity. And the Bible says It's training. It's training for us to rule and reign with Christ throughout eternity. And so God says, if you're going to give in, if you're going to allow your flesh to give in over and over and over again and become more and more debased each time because what you were doing a month ago doesn't bring you the same thrill as something new and you keep going deeper and deeper and deeper into version, God says, I'm just going to let you go. And, And when I think about that, there's just so many ramifications. When I think about abused children, God, and he says, I'm going to let you go, that means he's going to let them abuse children. He's going to let them traffic people. That, that I have a hard time with the sovereignty of God, but God understands that in that realm in that way. I don't have a hard time with the sovereignty of God. I just have a hard time understanding the sovereignty of God, obviously, because I'm not sovereign. So they're compelled to yield to greater depths of lust. And so then God judges lust. God judges sin. Jesus reveals about how he feels those who continue in immorality without repentance and without this process, this struggle. The struggle's okay. It's acting and and giving in to the struggle and then not repenting of it and continue to go down the road to where you get to the place where you say, what's the use? You know, I'm losing this battle every time. God says, I know you're going to lose the battle. That's the the nature of sin. You're born a sinner. But I want you to know that every time there is a forgiveness, there is a way to reconciliation, there is a way for deliverance, there is a way to walk in freedom. And as long as we keep pursuing that, God has said, my grace and my mercy are there for you every day. But there's seven letters to seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. And and when people read Revelation, they always read it in future tense. And, you know, there's theologians say seven churches represent seven dispensations, seven times in history, each church representing what's. I'm going to tell you, all seven of those churches could fit into a slot today. But and there's a couple of churches that God doesn't find anything wrong with. And both of those churches, by the way, are being persecuted and they're standing strong in persecution. And, and I'm always... When Jesus writes the letter, I mean, you got to picture this. Jesus is dictating to John because John's the one on the aisle who's writing it out. And every one of those small letters begins this way. So he's saying, he's like saying, take a letter. And he says, to the angel at the church at Ephesus write. I'm always intrigued by that because every one of those letters starts the same way. You're writing a letter to the angel of the church of that city. It's not to a congregation. And I often wonder, what letter would Jesus write to Azusa? What would he write if he says, to the angel of the church of Azusa write this? What would he write about Azusa? So he's writing about these churches. There's two churches. Understand, these are letters to churches. They're not letters to sinners. To the church at Thyatira and and to the church at Pergamos, he's got some problems with them. Listen to what he says to the church at Pergamos, Revelation 2, 12 through 16. To Pergamos write, you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. He says, repent, or I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, we're not going to get into end times theology here, but there's some important things Jesus says. Those who embrace the doctrine of Balaam. So if you want to study the life of Balaam, Numbers 22 to 24, Balaam is a prophet of God. And Balaam, and when he talks about the doctrine of Balaam, Balaam was a prophet for hire. So whoever bid the greatest on money, he would be their prophet. And so Balak, who is the enemy of Israel, wants to be able to defeat Israel, but knows that God, if he fights Israel, he fights God. So he says, the best way for me to defeat Israel is to pay Balaam. To prophesy against Israel. Because then, if he says God's gonna destroy Israel, God's gonna fight the battle for me and I don't have to do it. And so, Balak pays Balaam. And in Balaam's prophecies, in Balaam's speaking, you know, he tells him it's okay to eat things sacrificed to idols. This is before Peter's vision in the book of Acts, where things are defiled. He tells him sexual immorality is okay. And, and it, it's interesting because every time it comes time, however, to prophesy against Israel, Balaam prophesies for Israel. And Balak gets really upset. Says, dude, I'm paying you a lot of money here. You're supposed to be on my side prophesying against them. And every time you prophesy about Israel, you prophesy for them. And, and Balaam's response is one of my favorite verses. He says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. Has he not said, will he not do? God can't lie. So Balaam says, look it, I'm an idiot. I'm a jerk. I mean, even donkeys are seeing angels that I don't see. And they've got to ram me against a wall to tell me, what are you doing? Don't you see the angel? But he says, no matter how debased I am, God doesn't lie. God only speaks truth. And unfortunately for you, Balak, Israel's going to kick your butt and there's nothing else I can say. That's what God's saying, so I got to say what God's saying. So, but he's saying that the church, the church in Pergamos, has embraced the doctrine of Balaam. And and God says, repent. If you don't repent, you're going to have to deal with the sword of my mouth, which is my judgments that I will speak against you. To the church of Thyatira, to the angel, he writes, you allow Jezebel to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality. I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent. I will kill her children with death. The short and sweet of it, God hates sexual immorality it's in the church the church is not loud about it and against it how can you say don't commit sexual fornication when it's going on in your church how can pastors say don't commit adultery when they have a mistress The church is silent because of its own sin. And and these two letters, Thyatira and Pergamos, are churches. They're written to the churches of those cities. And it's become the doctrine, the practice of the people within those churches. Believers are sometimes made sick and die prematurely because of their sins of immorality. Again, listen to what Paul says. It's actually reported, now again, he's writing to the church. Okay, He's not writing to a bunch of guys sitting on a wall in front of a liquor store. He's writing to the church. He says, it's actually been reported there's sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as not even named among Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed, as absent in the body, but present in the spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has so done this deed. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the time of the Lord. Paul's saying, if you, then it is, have him repent and kill him. It's better for him to suffer in the flesh now than it is to suffer eternally in hell. Paul says, deliver this guy over to Satan. Why? Because he wants him to go to hell? No, because he wants him to repent. You know, and if the elders of the church come to you and say, okay, buddy, this is pretty sick what you're doing here, sleeping with your dad's wife, you're out of the church. And we're just going to let Satan have his way with you. And Paul's hope was that by saying that and by saying, look, Paul knows about this. Paul's judging you in his spirit. God's spirit is judging you. And now we as the church are judging you. So you just go do it or repent. I mean, one of the two. And basically saying if he goes and and does it, it's the end for him. But we can reverse God's judgments or discipline by repenting. Repentance is the key to everything. We're all going to mess up. None of us is perfect. We're all going to commit sins. Hopefully nobody in this room is committing sexual immorality, but we're all going to commit sins. Repentance is one of our greatest assets made available through the cross. That when we do fall, we don't have to walk in condemnation. Self, or from God. Everybody knows John 3.16. John 3.17 says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him should be saved. Paul says there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But it has to take repentance. We, we have to recognize the sin of the heart, repent and go before God. Paul says in Corinthians eleven thirty 30 through 32, for this reason, many are weak and sick among you, many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. If we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. So Paul's saying that there's a lot of people that are sick because of their sin, and God may just let them die so that they don't have to forego the judgment of hell. May let them die before they become so debased. That's the end of it all. And he also says this about the Lord's being an avenger of immorality in the lives of unrepentant believers. I'm talking unrepentant. Please Keep that unrepentant. But when he writes to the church of Thessalonica, he says, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter because the Lord is the avenger of all such as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man but God who has also given us Holy Spirit. So God is an avenger of, of those who are immoral. So finally, we have to live diligently in the opposite spirit of the spirit of immorality. And just quick, seven, seven quick thoughts. There's seven things that we can do to help us overcome. Number one, um, <clears throat> You know, James says this, Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive the meekness and the implanted word which is able to save your soul. So number one, we need to look inward and we need to commune with the Holy Spirit through the word of God. The word of God will convict you if you're in sin. Number two, we need to look upward. Because heaven is our reward, Colossians 3, 1, 4, 4, If you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory, Colossians 3:23 and 24. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Number three, look backwards. So deal with bitterness, shame, and wrong thinking. So you've got to look at where you've been to repent. Look forward, God's assignment in our life, and to his end-time purposes. So look to what you've been called to. Never fulfill their call because there's so many times people get caught up in sin, they think they can never fulfill their call because they're sinful. Look at you're going to sin. But you got to repent and remember who you are and what God's called you to and look forward to the fulfillment of the destiny and purpose God has set before you. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. <clears throat> Number five, look around. See the pain that our immorality would cause others. If you're married, I mean, what pain is it going to cause your wife and kids? Number six, look to others. In relationships with accountability, confessing our weakness. You know, Paul says this. Confess your faults to one another. Why? That you may be healed. And finally, look outward. By establishing boundaries to avoid circumstances that stir lust in us by what we look at, where we go, and what we do. So the spirit of immorality is alive and well in the body of Christ, it is alive and well on planet earth, but we have a responsibility to walk in righteousness, and to be a voice of righteousness, not to speak in condemnation, not to speak in judgment, I doubt if there's, I doubt there's anybody in this room who doesn't know somebody who's embraced in some sort of sexual sin in their life, whether it's adultery, whether it's homosexuality, whether it's fornication, um, we need to be a voice of love in that life, not avoid the issue, but constantly speak love, constantly pray for them, for God to bring them to the place of understanding of their sin and to the place of repentance. Because that's God's heart. It's the will of the Father that that none perish, but all come to repentance. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Um, We thank you, Jesus, that Um, You loved us enough to take us deeper than just the physical acts of sexuality, but that you've made sure we understand that by the time we get to the physical act, we've already done it in our heart and we've already broken fellowship with you and we're already in sin. So God, I'm asking that we'll be a people who walk in uprightness, in righteousness, in holiness, that when we do fall, We come to you quickly in repentance and remorse and we look for others to help us along in our walk that we would stand in righteousness. And God, I'm asking that we would rise up and be a voice for you in this day and this hour when everybody is doing everything they can to silence the voice of righteousness, to declare there are no morals. And so, Father, may we be your voice in this day and this hour. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. They're really happy that we're done in there. <laughs> All right. Any guess on whose kid that is? Parents, how old do you know your children's voices? That would be yours? <laughs> my sheep know my voice. <laughs> yes.